Good morning, church. Got to love all that repetition, huh? Dan's not thanking me for having him read that section. But we'll get to some of the repetition and the reason for it in a moment. But it is good to see you. It's good to worship with you, to bring God's word to you, whether you're here in this room or watching from home this morning. Uh, It's uh, good to be together even if it's not always under the same roof. In August of 2009, Clifton Williams was attending uh, the hearing of his cousin in the courtroom in Will County, Illinois. His cousin pled guilty uh, to a felony drug charge, and, and when Judge Rozak delivered a sentence of two years probation, Clifton Williams stretched out and let out a very ill-timed yawn. Judge Rozak noticed, later describing the incident by saying that William raised his hands while at the same time making a loud yawning sound. The judge decided this was a disrespectful interruption of the court and he sentenced Williams to six months in jail, the maximum penalty for contempt of court without a jury trial. So be careful not to yawn today. William's father said this, he said, I was flabbergasted because I didn't realize a judge could do that. It seems to me that a yawn is an involuntary action. His 79-year-old grandmother said, this is ridiculous. You get all these people in this city shooting up kids and here this boy yawns in court and gets six months. This could happen to any one of us. Well, this isn't the first time, by the way, that Judge Rozak has flexed his judicial muscles. Chicago Tribune investigation revealed that Rozak has charged several court spectators with contempt when, for example, their cell phones rang in the middle of a session. In fact, with 30 judges operating in his judicial circuit, Judge Rozak has brought more than a third of all the contempt charges filed in the past 10 years. Well, today, we're looking at another man in charge who flexes his muscles It's a case in which the punishment doesn't seem to fit the offense. So if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 as we continue in our sermon series on being a bright spot in a dark world from this Old Testament book of Daniel. And our story this morning is a familiar one. If you spend any time in Sunday school as a child, you heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A child returned home from her Bible lesson at church and was asked by her mom what she learned today at Sunday school. And the five-year-old answered, I didn't get it, mom. Something to do with your snack, my snack, and to bed we go. (laughs) Well... Someone was say, said that a good way to remember their names is shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Doesn't seem to help me one bit. But we kind of trip over their names, and as we come to chapter 3, we're talking about these three guys right here. Again, we really see the power of one, the domino effect of Daniel's life on these three friends. Chapter 3, uh, I'll tell you up front, it's perhaps one of my favorite uh, sections in Daniel. The familiarity, though, of this true story might be the greatest barrier to coming to terms with its powerful implications uh, to our lives today. 
So let's, go, let's get so close we feel the heat of that fire and smell the smoke of that ancient furnace. Now set it up this way. If you like headings, it's this. If you don't like headings, it's still this. The image that was set up, the three who stood up, and then the God who was lifted up. The image that was set up, the three who stood up, the God who was lifted up. Well, first of all, the image that was set up. Chapter 3, uh, look with me, uh, verse 1. I'd like you to follow along. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. And the NIV it says, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, as I already uh, referenced, as Dan was reading those verses earlier, you might have noticed a lot of repetition. But hopefully you noticed the repetition of that phrase, set it up. Set it up. You see it here in verse 1. In verse 2, after commanding that everyone on the federal payroll is to come to the dedication of the image, it says at the end of verse 2, the image he had set up. End of verse 3, says it again. The image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is no accident. Repeats it in verse 5, end of verse 7, verse 12, verses 14, and verse 18. King had set it up. We see it over and over again. God wants us to know that through Daniel's recording of this, that Nebuchadnezzar's obsession with power and driven by egotism has set himself up instantly in competition with the God of the Bible. The king has set this image up. Now, this is quite a switch from uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and what he said uh, uh, following Daniel's interpretation of the dream. You might recall back in chapter 2, uh, verse 30, 47. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 47. This is the king talking here. The same one who set up this image. He says in verse 47 of chapter 2, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. What faith? What's going on here? Is Nebuchadnezzar, when we get chapter 3, as a, as a lapse in memory? Did his belief in Yahweh God fade as he got older? Because from chapter 2 to chapter 3, there is a passing of time, uh, not just a few days or, or a few weeks or even a few months. Uh, we're talking years here. Some suggest as many 20 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But we ask the question, was Nebuchadnezzar's faith personal and genuine? Now my take is that Nebuchadnezzar just didn't really get it. Back in chapter 2, you might have picked up on the reading, uh, the wording of that verse, verse 47. He speaks of God as being Daniel's God, as your God, as Daniel's God. He doesn't recognize Daniel's God, Yahweh God, as the only God, but another God he will add to his collection of gods. He's a polytheist. But Nebuchadnezzar is so full of himself that he sets up this massive image that could be seen uh, for more than 15 miles away in any direction. And I think it's a, a likeness, this image I think is a likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. The image the king sets up is oddly proportioned. Did you notice that? It was 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. The image was tall 
and very skinny. It's just not a stretch to say it was kind of ugly to look at. Now, the location of this image is rather interesting to me, too. It was set up in the province of Babylon uh, in the plain of Dura. It's in, the, it's in the same area as another infamous tower. Can you guess which tower? The Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. It's where the builders of that tower were motivated by making a name for themselves, remember? Well, the king here is building this great image to make a name for himself. His hope is to solidify his dominion by unifying the many races and nations under his rule with a common religion made up of many gods and one object of worship. So the king puts together this ragtime band and he orders all the people to bow down to this image immediately when they hear the music. And if they don't obey his orders, they'll be thrown into the blazing furnace. And so, when the orchestra starts playing, everyone had an instant decision to make. Bow or burn. It's the image or the furnace. So the music starts. Everyone bows before this 90 feet high, nine feet wide range that the king has set up. And I can't help but think of Paul Simon's words. 10,000 people, maybe more, People talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. No one dared to disturb the sound of silence. And then he says, and the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. And we've been bowing ever since. Well, things seem to be going according to the king's plans. Everyone, everyone is bowing down from every nation from every language, all on their faces before this statue. Picture this. Thousands, if not thousands upon thousands of people hitting the ground, bowing before this image. Everybody is doing it. Well, not everyone. We have the three men who stood up. The three who stood up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still standing. And if you're in a crowd of people and all thousand people fall on their faces and you're still standing, you're going to stick out, right? What's interesting in this passage is the conspicuous absence of Daniel. (laughs) Why isn't Daniel mentioned along with his three friends? I mean, where is he when this event took place? Is he out of town on business? Is he just under the weather, not doing well? Is 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 he wasn't invited to this dedication? I mean, we can only speculate. It doesn't tell us. But based on what we know of Daniel's character to this point, it's safe to say that if he were present, he would have been in the company of the three friends who stood and not the thousands who bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's me, myself, and I monument. You know, we build me, myself, I monuments. We do. Kind of a sermon for another day. But the celebration is interrupted, though, you notice, by three nonconformists. I tend to like nonconformists. Maybe that's why I like this section. So often, we are content to go with the flow of the culture, even a subculture, that we, so that we aren't being noticed as different. And perhaps secretly, we're kind of hoping it stays that way. There was this poem that expressed it this way. He said, the easy roads are crowded and the level roads are jammed. The pleasant little rivers with the drifting folk are crammed. But off yonder where it's rocky, where you get a better view, you'll find the ranks are thinning. 
and the travelers are few. Let me ask, will you dare to stand when everyone else is bowing? Would you dare to stand when everyone else is bowing? Why stand? Well, let's return to our, 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 the narrative here. Now, if you get a group of kids together, there will usually be at least one in that group who serves as the informant, right? It's, it's inevitable. There's always one in every family. There's one in every group of kids who love to come and tell the, the ones in authority what is going on. They're the informants. There's some informants in this gathering here who can't wait to fill the king on three guys who weren't playing by the rules. And so these tattlers go to the king, verse 10 tells us, look at verse 10. They go to the king and they say, king, you've issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the, the, the lyra, the harp, the pipes, uh, the, you know, all kinds of music, right? Put in whatever there. They, they must fall down, worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 12. These tattlers, they're, they're continuing, they go to the king. They're saying, you know, there are some Jews. Now get this. There are some Jews, king, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You, you, you set them over this. You did, king. I think there's a little jab here. These are the guys, king, that you have promoted. <laughs> Let me tell you about these guys that you think so highly of and you think they're so great. You think they're ten times better than us. Let me tell you about these guys. They pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now it's amazing to me that these squealers are likely the same guys who owed their lives to Daniel and his three friends. If it weren't for them, the king would not have had his dream interpreted by Daniel and none of them would be celebrating their next birthday. Oh, how quickly we forget. This is how they show their gratitude. And what's the king's response to this disloyalty of these nonconformists? Look at verse 13. It tells us that the king was furious with rage. And I wonder, if you're in Nebuchadnezzar's situation, why really bother with these three guys? I mean, you've got everybody else bowing down. I mean, so what? There's three people who, aren't, who are still standing. But have you ever noticed this about egomaniacs, power-hungry people, those who have to have control? All it takes is one person to get in the way, in their way that sets them off. I mean, the king's ego is so huge that he's a raving maniac here. Now, to the king's credit, to the king's credit, he wants to make sure that what the tattlers were saying was true. And so the king asked the three friends in verse 14, is it true what they're saying? Is it true? Now, what's fascinating about the king's response here is that he, that he offers these three guys one more chance. He provides them with an out. He, I mean, prior to this, like, you don't bow down, you're going in the furnace. You three guys, I'm going to give you another chance. Let's try this again. Let's try this again. When you're going to hear the music, guys, you're going to hear the music. And when you hear the music, bow down. And if you do, all is good. I'll pretend this other thing never happened. But, verse 15, if you do not, it's lights out for you, you're going to be thrown into this blazing furnace. Then, notice what the king says at the end of verse 15, then when that happens, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? King, you just wait and see. It's bow 
or burn. And many would buckle under such circumstances. What would you have done here? Would you have bowed down? You know, we might rationalize here, don't you think? We might do a little rationalization. We might say, you know, we're really not hurting anyone by bowing down. And so what? I might be bowing down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing. <laughs> so maybe I'll go that route. No harm, no foul, and just getting with the program. I mean, I'm far away from home. Who's really going to know? I mean, this is what you do when you go off to, to college. You kind of just fit in with the crowd. So it's kind of expected. There's no big deal. It's expected at my new job that I do this a little shady business here. That's how business is done in the real world. No big deal. Tons and tons of rationalizations. And might these three guys have reasoned? You know, besides, God wants me to, around to be an influence on the king and the other people. I mean, how can I be a bright spot if I'm dead? But these three guys would not bow. Why not? First two of our Ten Commandments are quite clear when it comes to our worship. The first one is to not have any other gods before the true God. And the second is to make no graven image. There's to be no God substituted for the true God. And if we had time, we could look throughout Scripture and trace the, dead, the dreadful shipwreck that results when God is thrown overboard and we go after other gods. It's throughout the Old Testament. But you see, sooner or later, sooner or later, everyone is faced with this issue. What are you going to do with the God of the Bible? What are you going to do with the God of the Bible? We're all faced with that issue. I read about a man who was trying to be religious so he decided that he was going to go purchase a statue of Jesus for his home. And so after buying this statue of Jesus, he, he brought it home and he set this statue on the coffee table in the living room. Well, his wife wasn't too pleased with that. He said, it's not staying here. It felt like it didn't go with the decor that was in the room. So he removed it from the living room and he brought it into the den. He looked at it and goes, that doesn't really fit here. Later, the husband then moved the Jesus statue to another area of the house and, and he moved it to another and he kept moving it around. He couldn't find where he wanted to put this thing. Finally, the eight-year-old daughter who's, who's watching him do this says, what's the matter, Dad? Can't you decide what to do with God? <laughs> That's a profound question. What are we going to do with God? Many people can't decide what to do with God, so they make God in their own image. I'm, I'm going to reduce God to more manageable terms, because I don't like to think of God that way, so I'll think of God this way. Not how it works. King Nebuchadnezzar did not know where to put God on his God shelf. But the three men who were there, they did. They knew what to do. They stood up. They said, I don't know what to do with my God. And verse 16 tells us their response to this murderous threat. They say to the, the, the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're not being disrespectful here. They're just saying, we've made up our mind. We don't have to say anything anymore. We've said enough. And with the heat of the blazing fire in their face, they remained cool. They would not switch loyalties. Their allegiance was to God even when it was inconvenient. 
And often our loyalty to God is like the young man who sent this text to his girlfriend and said, Honey, I, I love you so much. I'd cross the burning desert to be by your side. I'd climb the highest mountain just to be with you. I'd swim the widest channel if I could just be in your presence. I would cross the dismal swamp to be with you. And he sent it off and she texts back, Oh, that's sweet. And then he added this text, that See you on Saturday unless it rains. <laughs> so much for going across the mountain. But it's amazing how fickle our, thor- our loyalties can be. As long as it doesn't inconvenient me in any way, I'll stand for Christ. But your loyalty to God, strong enough, is mine. That in a split decision, you would choose to stand up and stick out among the crowd. And when the time comes, when, when I say when, The time comes when we must stand up and obey God rather than human government or authorities. you got to pick your battles here, but there will be a time when we will need to do this. We must also be willing to accept the consequences. Hear that. We can't whine about it. These three guys are ready to accept their punishment for going against human authorities. Listen to what these three guys say to the king as they face their punishment for civil disobedience. This is the real gem of the passage right here. Verse 17, verse 17, and then verse 18. Verse 17, if we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. These men have an unshakable confidence in God that when it comes to being delivered, They know God is able to do it. No doubt about it in their minds. What amazing faith. God can. God can. God is able. God does. We worship a God who is able. We worship a God who can deliver us. God can. But, verse 18... Verse 18, but, God can, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These three guys were men of faith, but not presumption. They knew what God could do, but they could not demand God come through for them. It's kind of what Job said, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. Church, this is where I want to be right here. Verses 17 and 18. This is where I want to be. Not facing a furnace. Of course not. This is where I want to be. When life. It's the God can, but if not, principle. See, there's, there, there needs to be a distinction between what God can do and what God wills. His power and his will. God can, though he may choose not to. Are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? These two verses, verses 17 and 18, are very instructive on biblical faith. Because faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. And most of us, most of us can hold on to our faith when God makes sense. Most of us can hold on to our faith when, when, when deliverance comes. 
Most of us can hold on to our faith when the money comes in at just the right time or, or when our spouse uh, changes or, 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 we, or we pass that test that was, we're causing anguish to us about and, and, and we, can, we, can, we can hold on to our faith then when that happens. We can hold on to our faith when, when the results come back as we had hoped for. We can hold on to our faith when, when we see God open that door. When God comes through, we can hold on to our faith and we can all affirm, yes, God can. But if not, then what? For these three guys, a decision was made. Whatever God did or did not do was up to God and they would accept the outcome. Now I wish, this right here is where I wish that we were all reading this for the very first time. <laughs> we'll go, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. And I said, you know, that's it for today. Let's go home. We'll talk about it next week. Don't read until next week. We know what happens next, most of us. I wish we didn't. Did God deliver? Did he not? What's going to happen here? The God who was lifted up, our third heading this morning, the God who was lifted up tells us in verses 19 through 23 that the refusal to give in to the king's intimidation was a due. It fuels his anger. The only thing hotter than the king right here was the furnace. He demands the furnace become seven times hotter. Not hot enough? Let's go seven times hotter because I'm so angry with these guys. See, anger fuels irrational behavior. Because I don't know what his point was of seven times hotter. I mean, they're already going to die instantly. Oh, I want to make them suffer more. You don't go hotter. <laughs> you let down on the heat so they suffer more. Right? The furnace is so hot, it kills the soldiers who threw the three men into the large opening at the top of this smelting furnace. He loses some of his own men in his rage. Someone said, anger is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. That's what he's doing. I don't care what happens. I'm so angry. Everybody goes. The three men are thrown into this furnace that was like 1,000 degrees. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the ways I could die, I don't think about this often. Don't get too worried about me. But of all the ways I could die, being burned to death would be up there as one of the worst ways to go. Right? Uh, here, here, but not here. I mean, just saying. Now, most of you know what happens next. This is no fairy tale. This is the real deal. Nebuchadnezzar can't believe his eyes. And he asks his advisors. He's, he's sitting outside of the furnace. And he can look in through this hole. And, and he asks his advisors, uh, verse 24, now, wait a minute. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? I mean, it was three, right? And they, they you know, we want to make sure his eyes weren't playing tricks on him. And they said, certainly, king, there were three that we threw in that fire. And the, and the king says, come here, look. <laughs> look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I mean, they should have died instantly, but they are alive and they're walking around. Now, my little weirdness, I kind of picture myself dancing in the flames right here. Ha <laughs> ha, fire? No, it doesn't touch me. I'm dancing around, happy as can be. Didn't get me. That's what I'd do. It doesn't say that they did that. But not only the king witnessed the guys walking around, he saw a fourth being in that fire with them. In his words, this fourth being looked like a son of the gods. Now, the Babylonians believed that their gods had sons 
And so to the king, the fourth person in the furnace looked like a divine being. Now, we're not told what the king saw in the fire that day. Uh, The king refers to this fourth being as an angel in verse 28, and it might have been an angel. You can certainly land there. I tend to think that it was an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. It was a Christophany or a theophany. Uh, I don't think the king was aware of that, but he knew something out of the ordinary was going on and someone supernatural was in the fire with these guys. The king now has his answer to his question that he asked earlier back in verse 15. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, I see. God can deliver them. And in this case, he chose to. And God was lifted up as the God of all gods. And the king offers up praise to God in verse 28. But again, it is praise to Shadrach's God, to Meshach's God, to Abednego's God. I still don't think the king gets it. I mean, he's impressed with what their God did. He was impressed with the courage they had to take their stand. And so the king, who was given to mood swings, I don't know if you noticed that or not, he makes another decree. The king loved his decrees. He loved them. He says that this is a decree. No one will speak against their God. If you do, you're, you're toast. And he promoted these three guys once again. All right. How is this true account instructive for us? How, how is it useful for training us in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture does? Is it, is it that God uses fiery trials of life to refine us? Is the lesson that amid the trials, Christ is present with us as he was with the three guys in the furnace? Is what this teaches us that that we need to have the courage to stand up for Christ even if we are in the minority? Yes, yes, and yes. And there are many other lessons we could draw out from this for sure. I would suggest... I would suggest this is our takeaway from Daniel chapter 3. The God can, but if not, principle. The God can, but if not, principle. That we are to have unshakable confidence in what God can do and submissive acceptance of what he chooses to do. Two strands, church, of of true faith. Confidence in what God can do, acceptance of what he chooses to do. That means, wherever you may be feeling the heat right now in your life, Believe that God can deliver. He can come through, yet maintain a submissive attitude to his will if it differs from your request. God can. He does. Intervene dramatically in our lives. But God will be the determinant of how he responds. No one has the right to make that decision for him. God can. And it's safe to say That everyone in this room has situations where we're praying in faith, knowing that God can. What is that for you today? What what is it? What can can you point to in your life with confidence of, of what God can do in it? Fill in the blank. God can. What would you put in there? God can deliver you from what? God can, we know, with one snap of his fingers, turn your situation around. God can, with one word from his mouth, 
He could heal. He could deliver. He could restore. He could transform. He could change. He could remove. He could provide. He could intervene miraculously. God can, exclamation point, have that confidence. But, balance that confidence with submission to his will. But if not, if he chooses not, if, if he determines another course of action, if he doesn't come through the way you see it, what then? What will that do to your faith if he chooses not to? Will you still serve him? Will you remain in loyal obedience to him? What will cause you to bow to another to say, hang this God, he didn't come through for me. I'm going in another direction here. Will you live by the God can, but if not principle this week? God can. Heal my child's handicap, you say. But if not, God can get me out of all my financial problems right now that I'm having. But if not, God can restore this marriage. But if not, God can bring my adult child back to himself. But if not, what is your but if not? And can you trust God with it? Or is it going to derail you in your faith? Brian Sternberg, Brian Sternberg was a nationally acclaimed track star who held several records in pole vault competition. At the age of 19, he remained undefeated in outdoor competition and set his first world record. Then, just three weeks after Sternberg set his last world record, his life changed. While working on the, uh, on the trampoline during practice, Brian fell and he landed on his neck and there was a crack. Then all feeling and movement in his arms and legs were gone. Brian Sternberg was a, was a, was a Christian man and his faith was put to the test right there. He faced a crisis that threatened to leave him quadriplegic the rest of his life, confined to a wheelchair. Less than a year after the accident, he wrote an article for some magazine, and at the end of the, the article, he ended with these powerful words that describe biblical faith. He said, having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing does not come, is the other. Either one, he says, will suffice. God can, but if not. That's what he wrote. However, 10 years later, things had changed. He'd been convinced by well-meaning Christians that since God loved him, God wanted him to walk again. They convinced him that if he just had enough faith, he could stand up and walk. In Sternberg's mind, faith now meant there remained not two options for God, but only one, and that was complete healing. You see, Brian Sternberg was now putting his faith in faith. God didn't heal. He lost his peace of mind. He lost interest in his God. And he walked away and said, I don't want anything to do with that God. How many times has that unfortunate drama been reenacted over the years? The principle of God can... But if not, oh, may we seek to live by that throughout our journey of faith. Let's pray.
God, in, in, in all its familiarity, I pray the lessons that ought to impact us from this true story, that it not be lost. Whatever it is we need to embrace around this, I pray we embrace it. And wherever we are in this room, maybe it's a, a lack of faith of what God can do. I pray that you'd grow their faith in that area. Maybe it's a, it's a faith that's waffling because God isn't coming through. I pray that they grow in that area of faith. That either way, we would say, we choose to serve you and you only. I mean, nothing rattle that in our lives. For you are faithful. We can trust you. You are trustworthy. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we hang on to that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.